Good morning. It is a joy to be here. This is my first time in Amsterdam, and uh, it's treating me very well so far. I will set the timer. Matt tells me you're used to about three-hour preachers. <laughs> yes. So I'm from Africa, where actually I have genuinely been to a church, and the service was three hours long. My kids, who are young, in fact, there'll be a picture that appears. They did very well, but they did ask, is it okay if we don't go back to that church? <laughs> Our church is much more like your church, and, and we last about an hour and a half. Um, I am married to Sophie. Like I said, four kids. They've got names, and they've got nice names. And they've got ages, and you know, when they're naughty, usually I start with the youngest and work up to the oldest. It should be the other way around. But uh, sometimes their names come back to me. As Matt said, uh, I've been, we've been in Joburg for the last decade. Before that, we were in London. And that's about all you need to know, I think. Shoe size 45, if you want to buy me any after. Actually, my shoe game is on point today. I'm wearing my preaching shoes. You can, you can admire them later. But the church I'm from, that's what I want to tell you a little bit about. We are an, uh, we're an urban church, kind of like you, except we meet on uh, the seventh story of a building, and there's some pictures that will pop up there. There we are with our baptism bath, because it's hard to get lots of water up onto the seventh floor. We're in the heart of Johannesburg, and we're trying to take the Bible and make it relevant. Make it relevant. This, this kind of that ancient book encased in a modern device, we want to make it relevant to the Joe Burger, as I know you guys want to do here. Wanting to start gospel-centered communities around our city. And I'm really grateful that I get the chance to be here today, not least because it's an excuse to come and explore your beautiful city. Um, but I want to commend you as well. This is, this is a stunning building. You guys are looking nice. Can see you, you got cleaned, and uh, it's just great to be here. And I think these days church is pretty countercultural, so I think it's brilliant that you made the time to come here. And I'm hoping that kind of by the end of this morning, you will have encountered something of God's presence, that this will be something of a spiritual experience for you. And my preach really is wanting to provoke us to a sense of awe, and I'm gonna start by reclaiming the word awesome. Because actually, my kids say that everything is awesome. They watched a movie, the Lego movie, and there is a song that gets in your head that says everything is awesome. But actually it isn't. We've devalued that word. We talk about awesome movies and awesome burgers. Awesome weather. What awe have you experienced? One of my most kind of awe-filled moments was uh, I got to go to the Grand Canyon in America, and I, I went to Niagara Falls before, and there was a lot of water, and it was kind of cool, but it wasn't awesome. But the Grand Canyon, I found, was just breathtaking. And I could just stand there for hours and look at its, its, its vastness, and then there's all these layers going on. And, um, it was just amazing. And, and it just gave me a sense of smallness and a sense of the bigness of, of the earth, really. And then there was a, another 
kind of awe-invoking moment was uh, when my first son was born. And this is a slightly strange picture. And uh, we won't show it for too long because it makes some people feel a little bit strange. But this is before his first breath. So he was born into water. But that moment when he was born, when, you know, for nine months I've been watching my wife uh, nurture and, and, and expand, and you know there's a little person inside, but it's, it's just awe-invoking when you finally meet him. I think most of you would agree that there's a sense of awe in these things. Well, what creates awe in you? Is it experiences you've had? Is it relationships? Is it achievements? Is it in nature or architecture? And I wonder if you expect to be filled with awe when you come to church. Or would you have more of a kind of experience and a history of saying, no, church is a bit, is a bit boring. And actually, to invoke awe sounds a bit emotional and maybe a little bit uh, manipulative. Or maybe you're here just because this is what you've been doing every week. I'm hoping today to show that church should be a place of awe because the God of the Bible is an awesome, awesome God. The church shouldn't just be an intellectual experience but a place of spiritual experience that maybe it does affect your emotions a little bit, but even deeper, maybe it affects your soul. I wanna define worship. And I'm hoping this translates because my Dutch isn't so strong yet. I know Heineken, I know Amstel. I'm gonna learn a few more words, but Matt's got me on the right path so far, I think. <laughs> worship, simple breakdown in the English, can be to worth-ship. Things you ascribe value to, things you, you'd be happy to part cash for or you'd invest time in. Worship is worth-ship. It's a response of the heart. It's not just like paying your taxes, but actually it, it provokes an emotional response of some kind. You're, you're driven to it. And each one of us, each one of us is hardwired to want to worship something. We want to pursue something. We've got a goal. And what or who you consider truly worthy of worship is, is the thing you give your full and devoted attention to. And it's worth giving some time to reflection on. And if you're here and you'd say, no, I'm a follower of Christ and I want him to be the full object of my devotion, sometimes, you know, distractions creep in, but maybe you're here and you're just wanting to explore some of the, the teachings and the claims of Christ, I'd invite you just to, to reflect. What is it that your worship is focused on? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your bank balance. Maybe it's intellectual or academic pursuits. Maybe it's a relationship. And these things aren't bad, but it's important that we're conscious that actually that's what we're pursuing. You don't um, kind of want to climb the proverbial ladder and discover that it's leaning against the wrong wall. You don't want to kind of be chasing this dream 
and promises that it makes and then discover actually it was never ever going to be able to fulfill them. I'd call myself a Christ follower and worshipping Christ is what I want to live for. I love this book. I love church. I love Jesus. And I want to kind of narrow the definition of worship to those uh, moments in church uh, and when you're on your own, where you're singing, where you're praying, where spiritual gifts are being expressed. And the Bible tells us uh, that we can worship God in everything we do. But we've just had a, a, we've sung a couple of songs corporately. And I love those times. And actually, often in those times, I feel like I encounter God uh, at a soul level, that it invokes a sense of awe in me. And there's a, you know, music and singing is a gift from God. Like we, we do it in church, we do it outside of church. In South Africa, it's a very vibrant culture. And uh, when people are protesting, they will sing and they will dance. And they'll have a great time. But actually, they're protesting. And sometimes you forget that it's meant to be a protest because they're just having so much fun. We sing, and it brings people together. We do it at football matches. We do it like every nation has a national anthem. We have one song, and it unifies us. It brings us together around a common cause. We sing for pleasure. And sometimes we listen for pleasure. And I want to congratulate you on your recent Eurovision Song Contest win. <laughs> Amazing. And singing and music, it should be a whole body experience. It should kind of affect our moods. It should affect our emotions. And this should be the case when we sing on a Sunday. And what I find, this is kind of my experience of awe in worship, is, is that I feel I guess the, one of the best pictures is a, is a little bit like seeing the Grand Canyon or stepping out under a, a clear sky and there's thousands of stars. And you sense God's bigness and you become aware of your own smallness, that everything is just grander and greater than who you are. And you begin to get a sense of how you fit in and but of God's significance in it. I want to give us three pictures of worship in the Bible. And they kind of invoke awe, or the people involved have awe invoked in them. The first one is in Mark 15, and I believe it's going to come up with a Dutch translation. I will read the English, though, so that you can understand me. And that the context uh, of this first picture is that Jesus is on the cross. And he's, he's been there for three hours, well, he's been there for a while, and they've had three hours of darkness. And then Jesus cries his last cry. And there's a Roman centurion there, and he notices something in that last cry. I'll read the verses to you. It's Mark 15, 37 to 39. It says, Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and surprisingly, it's torn from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So this Roman officer sees something different in Jesus' last breath. 
Now, I don't know if you know many soldiers. I don't know any Roman officers. But most of the soldiers I've met are pretty tough guys. And this centurion was responsible for 100 people, so he was probably tougher than them. And he was responsible for crucifixions. So he would have seen multiple crucifixions. I think he would have been a pretty hard guy. I mean, I, I, I struggle with you know, eating meat sometimes because when I think about the little fluffy animals, and this guy was far from that. He would have been regularly, literally, putting people to death. And Jesus breathes his last breath, and he says there's something different about this one. And his conclusion is, I think it's a moment of awe and a moment of worship, that surely there was something in this man that points to God. Surely, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. And I think something in the soldier's heart at that point melts as Jesus reveals himself to this man. And Jesus is still revealing himself to people today. And we're gonna, uh, we're gonna sing some more songs in a little bit. And if you're here, and maybe you've just been dragged here, and you're not quite sure why you're here, my, my encouragement to you is to ask Jesus to reveal himself. Jesus is alive, and he's still wanting to reveal to people today that he's the son of God. And the application point of this picture is that the starting place for awe-filled worship is centered on Jesus' death on the cross. It's centered on what he did. And you can focus uh, on the person of who he is. He was this amazing man, God-man in one person, the incarnation. And he lives this perfect life and then he goes to the cross and he doesn't go unwillingly but he goes out of love for us. He lives the perfect sinless life. You can focus on the sacrifice that he substitutes his righteous life for my unrighteous one. The penalty that Jesus pays to delete our debt through the purity of his own blood. It's a picture of communion which we're gonna do later as well. And as you focus on the cross, you can focus on the resurrection as well, which tells us that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, conquered death, and he conquered hell, and he conquered sin. So we don't need to live in fear of any of those things anymore. So to make it really practical, my encouragement to you, and I've got a, a, an, a personal one, and I've got one for us uh, as a church. The personal one is to encourage you to daily draw near to the cross to reflect on Jesus' rescue for you, and you will encounter, in some measure, awe-filled worship. You can set a daily alarm. Try and make it a habit. And corporately, my encouragement is, uh, is before you come here, is to begin to prepare your heart. Because imagine, wouldn't it be brilliant? Everyone comes ready to worship Jesus. My church is called God First Church. And sometimes just as you come in and you see the sign, it's a brilliant provocation. I love that yours is called Liberty Church because you have liberty to worship Jesus. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that liberty in the same way. But today we do. So that's the first picture. The second picture is an awe-filled response 
And this is an amazing scene. We're turning over from Mark uh, into Luke. And the scene is, is in a house, a Middle Eastern house, and Jesus has, has been invited to the Pharisees for dinner. Now, the Pharisees were like the local counselors. They were kind of religious stroke civil leaders, and they've invited Jesus in, and they were always trying to corner Jesus. They were wanting to trap him. And they invite him in, and this bizarre scene unfolds. So Jesus is reclined at the table, and then a lady appears, uh, and she's a prostitute. And she lets down her hair, and she takes ointment or oil and breaks it on Jesus' feet and then begins to dry his feet with her hair. And it's bizarre and you, the tension in the room is palpable because it wasn't the behavior of the day. It, it was shameful behavior. She shouldn't have had her hair uncovered. She shouldn't have let it down. And Jesus should have said something. But let's read the verses. And it's Luke 7:37. It says, "And behold, a woman of the city, polite way of Luke saying she was a prostitute, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, then wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And Jesus seems to be completely relaxed with this. He's allowing this to happen. And the Pharisees are saying, how can you do that? She's a prostitute. She shouldn't be here. And I imagine there's a bit of a debate between the Pharisees saying, uh, well, how do you know that she's a prostitute? But they knew. And Jesus is relaxed. I wouldn't have been. My feet are a little bit ticklish, so this ain't going to work for me. And she breaks this jar of expensive oil. And it was equal to about a year's wages. So, I, you know, oil, I don't put any value on it. But when I think about a year's wages and what that could buy, like she would have been saving up maybe for five or ten years to buy this. This may not have been its intended purpose or, or use at all, but she sees Jesus and there's something in her heart that says, I'm so grateful. And Jesus explains why. In verse 47, Jesus uh, begins to engage the Pharisees in conversation because they're saying, look, Jesus, why are you allowing this? He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So this is amazing, Jesus is forgiving her sins, which the Pharisees couldn't get their heads around, because only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus is pushing them to a point of saying, well, is Jesus God or is he not God? And the gratefulness 
of Jesus' love and forgiveness, that's what leads the woman to break this year's wages, to just extravagantly give it to Jesus and do this amazing act of worship. Again, Jesus is the focal point of her devotion and her deep and beautiful worship of her savior is motivating, motivated out of thanksgiving. Her gratitude is awe-inspired. And it seems that the Pharisees don't get saved at this point. The way they were living was that they were trying to behave for forgiveness. That was, that was kind of their worldview, was if I do the right things, if I hang out with the right people, then I'll get saved. And in this situation, Jesus says that this prostitute is the one who is saved, that her faith has saved her, not her behavior. So what do you think? Jesus forces those present to decide, is he the son of God? Can he forgive sins? Maybe you're here and this is a new idea to you and perhaps a challenging idea to think that maybe there's stuff that I've done that God didn't want me to do. Maybe I've lived my life rather than God's life. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can forgive all sins, big and small. Awe-inspired worship results when forgiven people extravagantly express their loving devotion to the one who first loved and accepted them. And this changes me. This changes Matt. There'll be others here who will say this, that knowing Jesus' forgiveness has utterly uh, set my life on a different course and it keeps welling up in worship. So that application, this is a heart thing, that when we believe this truth, it changes how we see things. It changes how we live. My encouragement is simply this, to every day write down five things that you are grateful for. It's not complicated. You can start by remembering your forgiven state and allow these daily records of thanksgiving. They will point you towards awe-inspired worship. And when we gather, as we sing and pray, uh, as a multitude, and we recount the blessings that come directly from God, you know, let us move from what's sometimes fairly casual and calculated worship into something extravagant. In the Bible, there are examples of people who would shout, who would sing like we've done, but they would clap, they would wave, they would dance, they would play instruments. The picture you get from looking at worship in the Bible is more like being at a football game, more like being in a sports stadium. And this is, um, sometimes it feels odd for us. And, and I'm associating with us as slightly reserved people. So one of the things I loved when I moved to South Africa was how vibrant and expressive they were. Because in England, we're not so much, apart from at football games. But there's something in the Bible that wants to push us to a heart expression, to a devotion, to a love that, that speaks and feels and works its way out into our hands and our bodies. The third picture. 
And we're going to turn over to the next book of the New Testament in Acts. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And we're going to look at some awestruck Christ followers. And some who were just there to listen. There to explore the, the teaching of Christ. Acts 2, 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And I'd never seen this before. Verse 43, as a result of those things, an awe came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles, excuse me, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I've got four steps that we can follow, that this is what the, the New Testament church did. Number one, they gave themselves to truth, to community, to being together as a church, and then we saw the awe follows. Step three was that their hearts were changed and actually God's mission became paramount. And that's why it became easy for them to sell their stuff. And then the fourth step was that people were added to their church. And this is something that should happen in our hearts too, that as we worship, as we become appropriately obsessed with who God is and what he's done for us, actually our attachment to our possessions is gonna reduce. We're gonna begin to look after those in our congregation who have need. We are gonna be like Joel who challenges himself to give more this year than he gave last year uh, for gift day, that we're gonna want to grow and go on that faith journey. Worship is a heart response, and when our hearts response, we're happy to give. I remember my first date with my wife, Sophie. I didn't care what the bill was at the end. We certainly didn't split it. I wanted to impress her. I wanted her to know that I, I was interested in her, that I was pursuing her. And for that night, money was not an issue. And similarly with my kids, you know, when they need stuff and I can see it's in their best interest, then I want to do all that I can uh, to help them get it. If it's not in their best interest, and often it isn't, <laughs> then we say no. But it comes out of a heart of love. How do we live for the things we worship? You know, what are the things that we can easily spend our money on? I really like coffee. It's not hard for me to spend money on coffee beans. Other people, I worked with a lady who loved clothes, that every week her Saturday activity was to go and, and acquire an item of clothing. I, I couldn't do that. Other people will uh, spend not just their money but their time time on watching football. I've seen and heard of people who can spend hours 
I guess you spend even longer watching cricket. Now, these things definitely aren't bad. But sometimes they can become ultimate things, the things we live for. And we want to be Christ followers whose hearts and behavior is changed. This is discipleship. And what's also amazing is as we gather as Christ followers and we worship, that this can be uh, an apologetic, this can be uh, evangelistic, and it can begin to kind of bring a sense of God's presence into the room so that people who are in church who haven't been for a long time, maybe they begin to feel and see something different again. And that's what happens in these verses in Acts, that they experience the presence of God through praise and worship, you know, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and they witnessed the believers generously giving freely to the poor, and the result was they wanted in. They wanted to join the community. So I wonder, does our current worship kind of bring awestruck wonder, a reverent fear to us and to those who might be looking into our community? So let me conclude. We looked at three pictures. We kind of reclaimed the word awesome, that worship could be genuinely kind of full of awe, a reverent fear. And then we looked at three pictures of how Jesus reveals himself to the hard Roman centurion. He melts his heart, and he's still doing that today. We see Jesus' forgiveness of the woman who isn't named, but gave a whole year's wages in extravagant worship. And we see how when communities gather, Actually, people's hearts can be changed and their priorities are changed and they live counterculturally. So, this is kind of the take home. This is your homework, if you like. For the next week, the next seven days, picture this. We come back together for the birthday. And I'm sorry I'm not here because I really like birthday cake. You are having a cake, right? It's going to happen. Imagine you gather here next week. How would it look if people had committed themselves over the next seven days to personally worship God in word and in spirit, focusing on the cross, enjoying our forgiveness for 10 or 15 minutes a day? It would have such an anticipation. The, the, the tension, I'm sure, would be one of just amazing, kind of palpable joy. It would be awesome. And imagine if you could turn it into a habit that in a year's time, you kept building and building. And actually, one of my kind of New Year's resolutions, is about the only one I have, is each year I want to ask the question, do I love Jesus more than I did last year? Do I, have I worshipped him kind of more wholeheartedly than I did last year? And I'm wanting to do that every year, wanting to be able to get to the end of the year and say, yeah, I am worshiping Jesus more and more. Can I uh, invite you to stand? I want to pray for us. And then Matt's going to come back up. But we need God's help with this.
Yeah, Jesus, we look to you. We look to your cross right now. And I want to invite your spirit to be amongst us. I pray that you would give us a sense of awe, a sense of reverent fear for who Jesus did, for what he did on the cross. I pray that you would lift our expectations that coming to church would be something that moves us, not just intellectually, even not just emotionally, but spiritually grows us. I pray that these moments would be ones we look forward to gathering together as a family, as a community, to worship you. And I pray that in a year's time, Liberty Church would look back and say, yeah, our worship has grown more extravagant. Amen.